Father, God, thank you once again for a beautiful day to come together as the body of Christ and make much of Christ, to make much of your son, Jesus. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope of eternal life, but not just life and eternity with you, but a redeemed, restored life now in the present where we are able to, uh, God, pursue you and pursue the advancement of your kingdom with you. What an amazing gift that is as your children, that we get to be about your work here and now. So God, thank you uh, for that great uh, truth in the gospel. And uh, Father, I, I know that uh, the men and women, most of the men and women who are here this morning, they're here because of the gospel, because they've been changed by the gospel. And Father, now as we enter in to study a text uh, about, honestly, about finances and money, God, this is a place where oftentimes the rubber hits the road for us. This is a place that can be awkward for us, particularly as a, um, just a, a very prosperous nation, God. And so my, my prayer today, just for us as a people, is that when it comes to the gospel, God, we wouldn't just talk about it, but we would be about it in every way. That we would uh, see to it that we, we work for the sake of our lives, being conformed to the image of Christ, and in that, God, that generosity would not be an area that we overlook, and that we just kind of push off to the side and, and do other things and then not really worry about what we're doing with our finances, God. You say in your word, as we're going to see, that finances are such a huge indicator of what's going on inside our hearts as it pertains to you. And so, God, would you be with us now? Would you be with me uh, now as a pastor? God, this is not my favorite thing to teach on, God, because I know in our culture, People tend to not like hearing about money from the pulpit. But God, would you just be with me now and be with these men and women and help us to see uh, the truth that is in your word about this topic. So uh, we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Nehemiah 5, verse 1. Let's go. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, and it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Okay, pause there. Okay, so, so Nehemiah, uh, when he gets back to Judah, there are already many people who are living there, and so there, there is a reestablished economy. And with all of that, uh, classes of people have formed, have emerged, rich and poor and in between and, and so forth. And, and probably what is happening here is, is multifaceted. Many uh, have stopped working for themselves, as we've talked about, in order to get the work on the walls uh, done. And in doing so, they're now struggling financially because of it. Uh, also, apparently there's a famine 
of some degree in the land, uh, which has led the people to have to sell their own properties off to more wealthy Jewish landowners just so that they could eat uh, with uh, the fields and the vineyards. A lot of these poor Israelites uh, were going from being, this is sad, from, from, from being owners of some piece of farmland to being a hired hand on what used to be their own property, right? And on top of that, uh, there's a steep Persian tax on all of their produce. And because of all this combined, the poor Israelites are having to borrow more and more money from the richer Israelites to pay their taxes. Uh, And we're going to find out in just a minute that um, when money was being loaned from some Jews, these fellow Jews, there, there were interest rates attached to those loans, which was actually against the Mosaic law, and it was only serving to push the poor Israelites deeper into debt to their own Jewish brothers. Okay, verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held an assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So uh, let me just say it this way. Nehemiah's ticked. Okay, He's not happy. (laughs) He can't believe that these Israelites, who had just been enslaved to another nation for all this time, have gotten out of exile and now begun to just enslave one another for the sake of making a profit. It's a disgrace. So first, he he calms down. He says, I took counsel within myself. That means I took a breath, right, and thought about this. As we've seen, Nehemiah is a passionate but emotionally intelligent leader. Uh, And then he calls them out for their sin. And because they're guilty, they're speechless. They don't have a defense for themselves. So he says, all right, well, how about this? Stop. Stop this mess and restore your brothers and sisters. Give them back their properties and give them back all the interests that you have selfishly exacted from them so that we don't look like a hypocritical laughingstock to the world, claiming to be God's people and yet sinfully loving money and wronging one another without any regard for what God has to say. And apparently, uh, they were convicted by what Nehemiah says because in the next verse, verse 12, it says, Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing, of them, nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So as we've seen before, Nehemiah is a strong leader with conviction, and the people responded to it, but because he wants to make sure 
They're not just saying they'll do it with no intent to act. He shakes out his pockets with whatever was in them and made these rich Jews take an oath before the priests with a curse attached. The curse was if they didn't keep their word, God would shake them out financially and make them lose all that they had had as a punishment for their greed and for their disobedience. And then Nehemiah turns from describing that situation to describing his own financial situation. Verse 14, he says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also preserved, uh, persevered sorry, in the work on this wall, and we acquired uh, no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done. For this people. So here Nehemiah finally lets us know uh, that he had officially become the governor of Judah, and because of that, he was paid extravagantly. Okay, the governors before him had really laid into that privilege, levying the full taxes on the people so they could live in luxury, and even their servants wound up being well off and lording it over uh, others. But Nehemiah says, though he technically had every right to do that, he chose not to. He said the tax burden was high on the people, and so he didn't want that to be the case just so that he could live in luxury. He says he didn't buy up a bunch of land, and apparently he had been lending a good bit of his own money and grain to the poor Israelites who um, had been suffering while they were taking their time and energy to, to complete this wall. Not to mention, he was allowed quite a bit of good food for himself, uh, but he was clearly a hospitable man and fed a lot of other people each day instead of profiting and storing up material goods for himself alone. Once again, in all this we see, Nehemiah is a very compelling leader, isn't he? He's a very compelling leader who demonstrates much of what uh, a modern leadership guru, Simon Sinek, uh, articulates in his book, Leaders Eat Last. He says, the true price of leadership is the willingness to place the needs of others above your own. Great leaders truly care about those they are privileged to lead and understand that the true cost of leadership privilege comes at the expense of self-interest. Leaders are the ones who are willing to give up something of their own for us, their time, their energy, their money, maybe even the food off their plate. When it matters, leaders choose to eat last. And I think that as I've said several times before now about Nehemiah, these leadership qualities that he exhibits are really just character qualities that we as Christians should already be seeking to emulate because they're very much how Christ himself has been towards us. Amen? Now, uh, I think it's pretty evident that this, this entire passage in chapter 5 is about wealth. It's about money. It's about personal finances, however you want to say it. So, uh, heads up, that's what our sermon's about. Cat's already out of the bag because Matt told you, so you knew that. You know it's coming. The term slavery 
is used as well. Uh, But this text is not mainly about slavery because uh, the form of slavery that's happening in this passage is is not what comes to mind for most of us, which is the chattel slavery that stains our nation's history where people of one ethnicity were literally owning people of another ethnicity. That's evil and wicked. We denounce that, obviously, but that's not really what this passage is about. What we're seeing here is debt slavery, where the rich would lend to the poor and the poor would become further and further indebted to the rich and thus would have to work for them uh, as kind of like indentured servants until they paid off their debt. But obviously, due to the compounded circumstances of their plight, uh, the likelihood of ever paying off what they owed was extremely slim. Okay, but Anyway, as I said, this passage really highlights several important principles for us, both of the, uh, the sin that often springs forth from not thinking biblically about our money, as well as the godly way to think about and manage our money. So let's dig into those. We'll start with the bad, because that's where our passage starts. Point number one is this. As a general biblical principle, clearly evident here, I would say sins of a financial nature often become some of the most overlooked and culturally acceptable because of the comfort they afford. Okay. Sins of a financial nature often become some of the most overlooked and culturally acceptable because of the comfort they afford. Let, let me be clear. Money in and of itself is not a bad thing. Okay. Money is a good thing. Material prosperity is not intrinsically a curse. It's a blessing for how it allows us to acquire the necessities of daily life and to help others receive what they need to live as well. However, money often gains a unique kind of power over people, and it gets a strong grip on them because while a certain theologian of yesteryear so eloquently quipped, mo money, mo problems, We tend to think, mo' money, mo' comfort, don't we? Mo' money, mo' comfort. Mo' money, better food. Mo' money, nicer car. Mo' money, bigger house. Mo' money, fancier vacations. Mo' money, you fill in the blank. Lawn service, frivolous spending, nails done, hair did, new phones, new TV, new shoes, new tools, new whatever you want new. (laughs) New whatever you want new. They got it. It's the same as it was before. It's just shinier and sleeker, and it it satisfies our insatiable desire for trinkets and toys to fiddle with until we get bored and then repeat that cycle. And in this way, money, which should be a good thing, becomes an idolatrous thing. We use money to make ourselves feel good, to pacify us, to make us feel safer and more prominent, And it really does feel good to spend money on something you want, doesn't it? Can we just be honest with ourselves? There's a feeling to it, isn't there? When you swipe your card or click order and you get whatever thing it is you've really been wanting and you open the box or the bag or the door or whatever and you take possession of that thing, there's, there's a feeling to that, isn't there? There's a feeling to that. Like a good endorphin kind of feeling. Almost like a drug if we're able to 
really be honest, and we can get addicted to it. It's called materialism. It's absolutely rampant in our culture, and every single one of us knows it because each one of us has stuff that we want, don't we? We all have stuff we want. It may not be cars or clothes or houses or the the big things like that, but we all have wants that we know money can buy, and our culture tells us those desires are good. Treat yourself. Get it. Do it. Buy it. And if we get our hearts all bound up in that way of thinking and someone pushes back on us, we can become like Gollum and the Hobbit, right? Sitting in the darkness with the ring of power, my precious, you know, like, don't, don't, take, my, don't take my precious from me. And here's how it's even worse for us than that. We live in the most prosperous nation literally ever. Okay, literally ever. And so in a sense, materialism becomes like the air we breathe. We're all constantly consuming more stuff at a faster and faster pace. And so here's my point. Who's going to call us out on our materialism when we're all materialists in the midst of a materialistic people? What pot is going to stand up and call the kettles black? We need God to do that. We need God to do that, but he only does that through his word. And thus, sins of a financial nature often become some of the most overlooked and culturally acceptable because of the comfort they afford. That's what had happened in the nation of Israel. Debt slavery had become common practice. The rich profiting off of the poverty of the poor, that had become a way of life that was normative to them. These people needed food. These people had money to spare, and so they would loan it for a price. I mean, were the poor suffering? Sure. But the rich probably explain that away as they're doing a noble thing, lending them money and food so they could survive. And that's what we tend to do. That's what we tend to do with sins of a financial nature. We suppress them and we explain them away. We put the spotlight on the other good things that we're doing in order to overlook and pass over that not-so-good thing that we're doing. And the more people who are doing that, all the better. All the better and more convenient because we can all just collectively accept the reality that we all struggle with the same thing, right? We all struggle with the same thing, and so compared to one another, none of us is really that bad. Tim Keller, in a book he wrote about modern idolatry, very pointedly says this. He says, once you're able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools, and participate in its social life, you will find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. And so you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to those in your bracket. The human heart always wants to justify itself, and this is one of the easiest ways. You say, I don't live as well as him or her or them my means are modest compared to theirs you can reason and think like that no matter how lavishly you are living as a result most americans think of themselves as middle class but the rest of the world is not fooled 
When people visit the U.S. from other parts of the globe, they are staggered to see the level of materialistic comfort that the majority of Americans have come to view as necessity. That hurts, doesn't it? But what does God say about it? What does God say about it? Maybe, maybe God will go easier on us than Tim Keller. <laughs> if none of us are passing, surely he'll grade on a curve, and we'll, we'll be okay, right? Good luck finding that in the Bible. Actually, here's what you'll find in the Bible if you dare to look. Scripture warns often that sins of a financial nature are so dangerous because they threaten to undermine and refute our entire faith. The Bible talks about money more than it talks about a lot of things. Actually, more than it talks about just about anything. You could Google this, it's common knowledge, but to give you some perspective, the Bible explicitly speaks on topics of like prayer and, and, and faith around 500 times. It talks about financial things like 2,300 times. To reference Keller's book again, he points out, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than he does about sex. Yet most, no, like no one thinks that they're guilty of greed. Almost no one thinks they're guilty of greed. Therefore, we should all begin with a, a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that this is not a problem for them. So let's read a sample of New Testament passages on this topic. You've probably heard these, and there are many others, obviously, but we don't need to read all of them. You'll see. It'll hurt just to read a few. So Matthew 6 Here's what Christ himself says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's so much in these verses, but I'll just point out three big ideas. These are not in your notes, but if you want to write them down, they'd be good to write down. Okay. Number one is this. Treasure on earth is not real treasure. Treasure on earth is not real treasure in the sense that when you die, you cannot take it with you. Right? It'll wind up in someone's garage sale or their giveaway bin to take to goodwill. Real treasure, Jesus says, is acquired by doing the will of God with your life and with your finances, obviously. And this is a kind of spiritual investment that is paid out eternally when you reach glory. All right, so that's the first thing. Treasure on earth is not real treasure. The second thing Jesus says is if you can identify what your money revolves around, you'll figure out what you love most. If you can identify what your money revolves around, you'll figure out what you love most. This takes honest inspection of our bank accounts, our bank statements, and it takes introspection of our motivations and what we purchase. And I'm just going to tell you, I assume almost nobody's going to do this, okay? Not because they can't do it, but because they don't want to see the true answer, okay? But if you care about what Jesus has to say... You will. You'll look at your spending. As Keller said, especially as Americans, we should all assume we are susceptible to sins of a financial nature. 
So treasure on earth is not real treasure. If you can identify what your money revolves around, you'll figure out what you love most. And number three, Jesus says, money, if we allow it, will set itself up as a master in our lives, which will not allow us to submit to Christ as our master. And vice versa. If we say Jesus is our master, our Lord, our Savior, our King, we we will not allow money to enslave us. We'll make it serve us, not the other way around for the glory of God. Jesus is bold, but he's not difficult to understand here. I'm sure at this point you can see what I'm saying when I say sins of a financial nature can undermine and refute our faith entirely. Do you see that? Jesus is very plain about this. If the way that you live indicates that you care more about what money can buy and do for you in this life, for your comfort and your pleasure and your pride, if you care more about that than you care about seeking his kingdom and growing in grace and spiritual maturity, your faith can easily be a sham. That's not my words, that's Jesus' words. Your faith can easily be a sham. Just because you say Jesus is your Lord does not mean Jesus is your Lord. Jesus says this over and over, just because you say Jesus is Lord doesn't make him your Lord. It is totally possible to deceive yourself and say Jesus is your Lord when actually money's your Lord. Money's your Lord. And so we have to check our hearts. How do you do that? Well, you have to check your bank statement. Now, Jesus' words are probably sufficient to get us through, but let me just read a couple more texts to drill down on these concepts. Sorry to do that to you. All right, 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. And if we have food and clothing, with these will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we we see here the words of Jesus reiterated, don't we? A desire to be rich will conflict with your faith in Christ. The desire to be rich will conflict with your faith in Christ. The two cannot peacefully coexist. You cannot serve God and money. And to be clear, this text, I want to be really clear here, this text does not say you can't be rich and also be a Christian, does it? It doesn't say you can't be rich and also be a Christian. You can. There's a common misquoting of these verses that says money is the root of all evil. Is that what this says? No, that's not what this says. That's why we need to read our Bibles more closely. It says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. That is, if you love money, if you love money, that will be a gateway into many forms of sinful behavior. That will enable many forms of sinful behavior in your life if you love money. Love of money doesn't look like 
Scrooge McDuck diving into a big pool of gold coins, okay? Like that's, if you're thinking love of money, like just detach that. Maybe that's just me who thinks of that when I think of love of money. It, it usually looks like people blowing their money on any number of things they don't need, but they just want simply because they can. That's love of money. But it is possible to be rich and simultaneously be, be godly. You can be rich and godly at the same time. Remember, guys, two things can be true at once. It's possible to be rich and be godly. We'll talk more about that, what it looks like in just a minute, because Nehemiah is a great example of it. But here's the key difference. You ready? Here's the difference. Godly people who are rich don't love money. Godly people who are rich don't love money. They love God, and they love people with their money. Okay? They love God and people with their money, and they're content with not keeping an overabundance for themselves. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 6. The author of Hebrews says it as well. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So with all that, I hope you see how dangerous sins of a financial nature can be. In our culture, we tend to overlook them and accept them because we're all so susceptible to them and we don't want to be confronted on them. That's why I could hear a pin drop in this room right now. We don't like thinking about this, but they will undermine and refute our entire faith. To wrap that first point up, I'll read you what Bible teacher John Bloom says about it. He says, material abundance easily obscures our vulnerabilities, giving us a misleading sense of security and often a false sense of independence. The danger lies precisely in the fact that it doesn't feel dangerous. We tend to like the feeling that it gives, being people whose sinful, self-centered pride is far more pervasive and powerful than we're usually aware of. We love the sense of autonomy and indulgent opportunities wealth affords. We love not feeling needy. We consider that normal. But according to Jesus, we're completely needy. We're completely needy. And hence back to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah says to these wealthy Jews, ought you not to walk in fear of God? Ought you not to walk in fear of God? To sin with our finances, and it is an extremely presumptuous thing, friends. To pretend like any bit of our wealth really truly belongs to us and like we can do with it whatever we please. As Christians, we are to fear the Lord, knowing that He is the one who all of our provision comes from. And because of that, we are to do with it and live with it what He instructs. Okay? So what does He instruct? Well, you probably know this, but Christians are called to be generous no matter their level of wealth. Christians are called to be generous, no matter their level of wealth. Nehemiah is an amazing example of generosity. I'll, I'll define that more in just a minute, but uh, here are some of the most common New Testament teachings on why we're all called to be generous. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So here are two principles we see at work in these two famous verses, okay? Here's number one. Again, these aren't your notes, but you can write it down if you want to. Number one is this. Giving generously is first and foremost a response to the gospel. Giving generously is a response to the gospel. We, We give out of an overflow of humble joy that Christ, the King of all creation, He emptied himself by stooping down to enter into human flesh, to suffer and die, to pay for our sin and lavish upon us his perfect righteousness, the riches of his righteousness, so that we could enjoy the unfathomable, priceless gift of eternal life. That's why we give. If you're not generous, that's why. At the root of it, that's why. If you're not generous, it's because you don't understand the gospel. Maybe you understand it intellectually, but you don't grasp it at the heart level. Because if you do, you can't help but be generous. Because who are we? Who are we to hoard our material blessings for ourselves alone when Christ paid it all on the cross? Born-again Christian faith works itself out in a life of generosity. Here's the second thing. Secondarily, we give cheerfully because we expect that God is going to continue giving to us. Okay? I always want to clarify here. This is not prosperity theology. Okay? (laughs) This is not the prosperity gospel. We give cheerfully because we expect God is going to continue giving to us. This is sound biblical theology. Anyone who has begun living a life that's generous knows that God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others and that when we pour out, God keeps pouring in, doesn't he? Anybody who's generous, does God do that? He does that, doesn't he? You pour out, he pours in. He just keeps pouring in as you pour out. Sometimes in incredible unforeseen ways. I mean, crazy ways. I'm sure there's stories in here, crazy ways. God has blessed you financially because of some, I mean, you've lived a generous life. He does that. He does that. Because he has said, for those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully, not to spend it on ourselves. That's where the prosperity gospel gets off there. Not to spend it on ourselves, but so that we can continue to abound in good works. To do the work of the mission. So that's a word to all of us, no matter how much we have. If we are in Christ, we're called to be generous like Christ. If we're in Christ, we're called to be generous like Christ. But let me explain exactly what I mean by generous before we wrap it up today. We see from Nehemiah's great example, as a very wealthy, but simultaneously very godly man, Generosity is an intentional 
determination to live on significantly less than you make for the sake of helping others and fueling the work of Jesus' church. That's generosity. An intentional determination to live on significantly less than you make for the sake of helping others and fueling the work of Jesus' church. Obviously, Nehemiah did not have any idea what Jesus' church was as an Old Testament saint, but we're in the New Covenant, and so I'm using New Covenant language. Okay, The definition, this, it's a self-explanatory, isn't it? This is self-explanatory, but I just have to say it because if you go back and reference the first half of my sermon, which wasn't very fun, I know, uh, we, we tend to wiggle out of financial faithfulness, don't we? We tend to wiggle out of financial faithfulness if we don't explicitly state what it is. So here, here's what it is, okay? Generosity is determining to give your money away. That's what it is. Generosity is determined to give your money away. That's the brass tax of it. That's what Nehemiah does. Did you see that? You can read it again. That's what Nehemiah does. And that's what New Testament believers did. And it's what we're called to do. So let me give you a maybe let me just give you a, a hypothetical, okay? Because I just want to be as clear as I can. We should say, for instance, let's say you or your family, okay, you make fifty thousand dollars a year annually. Okay. So you would say, okay, I make $50,000 a year, and I, I want to put Jesus first in my life, and so right off the top, I'm going to give, let's just say, 10% to the church in my regular weekly offerings, and then some percentage through special missions things and just generosity to people who have need, who I encounter. Okay, So that is, in a practical sense, saying, if you say that, here's what you're saying, you're saying, okay, so I make $50,000 a year, and I'll give five or $6,000 of that away, and I'll intentionally live on forty-four dollars to $45,000 a year. Isn't that what that's saying? I'm not crazy, right? That's what that's saying. Okay. And you're saying that because you would say, I want Jesus' kingdom to advance And the main way he has outlined for that in his word is through the local church, taking the gospel to their city, to their state, and the nations through a variety of missional strategies that I know, because I'm not oblivious, costs money. Missions cost money. And I want my money that God has blessed me with to be a part of that. Because Jesus is so good. He's my Savior and my Lord And so how could I do otherwise? How could I do otherwise? That would be as clear as I could make it, okay? Maybe you're like, I wish it wouldn't have made it clear, but that's as clear as I can make it, okay? That's baseline Christian financial generosity, okay? That's what it looks like. Now, here's what it's not, okay? It's not saying, well, you know, I mean... I don't give my money because I don't need my time. I give my time and I give my energy. So I don't, that's why I don't give my money. I, I give my time and my energy. If you were to say that, hypothetically, then my question would be, where do you see that in the Bible? Where do you see that in the Bible? Let me just go ahead and give you the answer. You don't. You can't. Because it doesn't say it. It doesn't say it. That would be 
a made-up rule that's unbiblical. And I've heard people say it, but that's a made-up rule that would be unbiblical. In order to get out of being generous as Christ has called you to be generous, right? So if you want to dig around in your Bible, what you'll find is that New Test- the New Testament church was extravagantly generous, often giving more than they could reasonably afford. Paul says that. Some of these believers, they were giving more money than, he's like, are you, are you sure you want to give that much? That's what was going on there for the sake of the gospel. They would even sell their stuff to get more money, their houses and their properties. They could give more away and share more with others in need. Now listen, I'm not telling you to do that, okay? I'm not telling you to do that today. I'm just telling you that's what the early church did. We can read about it. It's right there in the Bible. The early church gave their time, they gave their energy, they gave their money, and a lot of times they even gave up their lives for the sake of the gospel. Okay? So that's what we have to go on. Right? That's what we have to go on. I do think That's what spiritually mature Christianity often looks like. But I'm just giving you the basics to start with. Determining to give a percentage of your income would be the starting point, okay? It doesn't have to be 10%, but 10% is usually a pretty good place to start. Most of the generous people I know give at least 10% of their income to the church, but they wind up giving away more than that for other missions things and because they're hospitable they open up their their living rooms and their dinner tables for people and so forth so 10 percent, to be clear is normally referred to as a tithe okay and that's an old testament term some of you're like that's old testament you're right it is old testament so we're not bound to that but again the new testament church did not give less than a tithe they gave more okay so generally speaking 10 percent is a place people like to try and start, okay? So let me just qualify that with one more thing. If you are in, like if you're massively in debt, I don't know that, but I know people get in debt. So if you're like massively in debt, or you've made some bad financial choices in your life, and you can't afford to give 10%, like you know genuinely, I can't do that. I'm bound up, I can't do that. Let me just tell you, you're not bound to do that. You don't have to do that. But I would encourage you to just be honest about the mistakes that you've made and figure out what percentage you can give cheerfully. Figure that out. Look at your bank statements. Figure it out. Okay? Look at your income. And then give that. Give that. With the hope and prayer that God would bless your efforts and help you to increase it. Okay? If that's that's 6%, or that's 8%, fine, fine, that's fine. Again, it's about your heart. If now, if you hear this and you think, awesome, okay, pastor says, I don't have to give 10%. The lowest number he said was 6%, so that's what I'm going with, right? That's the, that's the low rung there. I'm going to, I can hit that six, okay? Like, that's between you and the Lord, man, all right? That's, that's between you and Jesus. You're not given to me, you're given to him, and he knows it, okay? So I'm, offering, I'm just offering you my best biblical counsel, okay? 
You're not accountable to me. You're accountable to Christ. And so work that out with him. Christians are called to be generous no matter their level of wealth. And a definition of biblical generosity based on Nehemiah and based on others would be an intentional determination to live on significantly less than you make for the sake of helping others and fueling the work of Jesus' church. Okay. And if you're wondering, because you don't know me that well, I know not all of you know me that well. If you're wondering, is this what you do, Tad? This is what I do. This is what I do. If you want to know more specifically what I do, I'm happy to share that with you one-on-one. But to say it in scriptural language, I I try to give, me and Amy try to give in keeping with our income. Okay? In keeping with our income. Because Paul tells the Corinthian church to do that in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come, and when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So this is where we get the phrase, in keeping with our income. Okay? Paul is just saying, however much you're bringing in on a weekly basis, you should be figuring out what percentage of that is a generous gift for you. What's a generous gift? And on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, that's when the church is meeting, so on the first day of the week, you should set that, that money aside with your brothers and sisters in Christ and store it up. That's what he says. Store it up for the sake of the missional work of the church. Okay. Now, the reason I, led this, I, I read this last one is just, I just want you guys to see I just want you to see, I'm not making this stuff up. This isn't just what the church came up with because we got to keep the lights on. This is what the Bible says. And so I I just want to do my best to tell you what the Bible says and help you to do that if you want to. Okay, that's that's why we do an offering talk every week. Okay, that's why we do an offering talk every week in service. These, These verses right here are our precedent. It's what the New Testament church did the Apostle Paul's instruction. So it's what we strive to do as Mosaic Church here and now. All right, let's close. As biblical, <laughs> as biblical as I know this is, I'm just going to confess to you, it's always a little bit nerve-wracking to do this. This is not my most fun Sunday, okay? Not my most fun Sunday to preach on giving because here's what I know. I know a lot of people don't want to hear about money from the pulpit. I know that. And here's what I also know. Just be really truthful with you. I know that some of you don't give. I know some of you don't give. Here's what I mean. I do not know what any of you give individually. Okay? Because I don't see the finances of our church with that much detail. I, just, I want to guard myself from that. Okay? Like when people come into leadership, into high levels of leadership, I know what they give because that's an accountability thing. But if that's not you, I have no idea. If you gave $5 last year or $5,000 last year, I have no idea. I do not know that. Okay? So I just always want you to know we have a, a, a great bookkeeper and a finance team for those purposes. But I know how many people we have, and I see the end of your numbers. And I know that if all of us together were really giving generously, it would be more. 
It would be more. This is not rocket science. We have about 50 families in Kalmazik, their church. The median household income for Crestview, this is Google it, okay? It's $55,000 a year. If 50 families gave 10% on $55,000 a year, we'd be bringing in $275,000, but we're not. We're bringing in 205, okay? That's just, these are just facts, okay? So I get it. I get it. And I'm not upset about it. I'm really not. I'm not upset about that. If, if you don't give, or you know that you don't give like you should, I'm not upset with you. I'm not upset with you. God is good. He provides for the needs of his church, for his people. And by his grace, Mosaic Church is able to do a lot of gospel good on $205,000. Amen? So for those, two, two people I'll address here. For those who are living generously and giving generously to Mosaic as your church, as always, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for doing that. Seriously, thank you for being generous. You are making a big impact for the kingdom of God when you give through Mosaic. And what I mean by that is people are accepting Christ for who he is, who didn't know Christ before. That's happening here. And your sacrifice of your dollars is a big part of that. Especially in a financially prosperous culture like what we live in, if you're being faithful financially, if you're not just talking about it, but you're being about it, that's a big deal. It really is. So thank you. And keep, keep it up. Keep it up. But my last point this morning is this. If you are a Christian who is not generous, you should acknowledge it and repent for the good of your own soul. If you're a Christian who's not generous, you should acknowledge that. I mean it. I really mean this. If you call yourself a Christian and you're not generous, you should repent of that. Not for me, for the good of your own soul. I, I don't say this to be harsh with you. I say this because I love you and I care about you. And if, if you live... If you're willing to live your life in such a way that you don't care what anyone has to say to you about how you deal with your finances, even if that person is God, then you are in a dangerous spiritual place. You're in danger if you don't care what someone has to say to you about your finances, even if that person is God. Giving generously is a response to the gospel and God does not command us to give because he needs our money. God doesn't need our money. He commands us to give because giving generously is what's good for us. It's good for us. It is good for the soul to be in awe about what Jesus has done for us and in humility determining to give a significant percentage of our income to him by faith so that he can use it and multiply it for more people to hear about his love and receive the same grace that you and I have received. That is good. That is good for us. It's good for our souls to be generous. So if you're wrestling with this today, I just want you to know my heart for you is the same as the Apostle Paul's heart for the Philippian church. When he says, not that I seek the gift, 
Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Look right at me. I'm not after your money. I'm not after your money. Mosaic Church is not after your money. And God is definitely not after your money. But God and Mosaic, myself included, care deeply about your heart. And Jesus says that what you do with your money is a huge indicator of what is going on inside your heart towards him. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I hope you know I say all this in love. And as Tristan McIntyre always says in his offering talks, if you're not a Christian today, please, please, please do not give your money. If you're not a Christian here, that's okay. You can be honest about that. We're glad you're here. Don't give your money to our church. Don't give your money to our church. We would so much rather you receive the free gift of salvation by grace alone that Jesus wants to give you today. That's what we want for you if you're not a Christian. All that's required is faith. If you'd like to chat about that more, please come see me after the service today. Let's pray. Father, God, I confess that... uh, not my favorite sermon to preach. It never is. God, because I know we live in a prosperous nation. I am a wealthy man amidst other wealthy men and women. And it's hard for us to look at our finances and be honest about what it is that we prioritize in this life. And so, Father, I just pray today, first of all, I pray that no one in this body, no one in this room today feels like I have been heavy-handed on them, or God, that you are bearing down meanly on them. Father, I pray that they would know that this is all grace. It's all grace. Your command to us to give generously is for the good of our souls. It's not that you might hurt us or take from us. It's so that we might truly live our lives for the gospel we say we believe, and that we might be blessed ourselves as we give. God, truly it is more blessed to give than to receive, and it is a great thing when we see that our finances that you have given to us are going out and advancing your kingdom in this world. God, I pray that that would truly be a desire that you would just grow among the hearts of these people here, myself included. God, help us to be, even those of us who are being generous already, help us to be more generous, God. Help us to desire to give away our time, our energy, our money for the sake of the gospel, to see the gospel go out and save the lost, to seek and save the lost. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word that convicts us and encourages and does all that you desire for it to do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.